Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. The war in Ukraine and Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas has created a massive opportunity for alternative non-fossil fuels. The power generated by solar energy has reached new records in the EU over the summer as supplies from gas, hydropower, and nuclear were all impacted by the energy crisis. My guest today is Eric Martinson, CEO and co-founder of Svia Solar, one of the fastest growing clean tech companies in Europe. Svia Solar offers solutions for sustainable living, including solar panel systems, batteries, electric car chargers, fossil-free electricity contracts, and a platform enabling customers to produce, consume, and sell their own power. Since founding the company in 2014, Eric and his team have grown the business from zero to 1 billion Swedish kronas in revenue and expanded the business into five markets in Europe. In today's episode, we'll delve into the economics of solar energy, why the time is ripe for solar, and some of the lessons Eric has learned building his company. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great. Eric, let's start with the market. Tell me a little bit about the overall percentage of global energy that's currently solar? I mean, right now, it's only a couple of percentage points that are solar. But long term, if you look at sort of the trends of cost and also what's happening, I mean, it will over time really be the largest factor for energy of all sources. It's a great potential. And our job with many other great companies out there is really to take away coal, oil and gas to get rid of fossil fuels. So that's why we and other companies within wind and solar are expanding super fast. So what are the economics? I mean, we've been hearing about solar for a long time and cost was definitely a big issue in terms of why solar wasn't something that had larger adoption. How does solar compare to fossil fuels today? Has it drastically changed? I think that over time, solar has been a little bit cheaper year after year. And at the same time, as we can also see right now, is that energy prices also for for fossil fuels have gone up over time. And just a couple of years ago, you saw a shift towards that where solar and wind are more competitive on price points without any subsidies at all than basically fossil fuel sources. And that's really when things starting to happen really fast. And then, as mentioned in the beginning, given what's happening in Europe right now with energy, you can call it energy crisis, basically, where prices are several multiples higher than normal, the sort of economics of solar is super, super good. It's really one way of insurance your bill of being lower. So, I mean, if you sign up for, let's say, a 20-year rental solution for solar, you know it pretty much exactly what you're going to pay every month. And it's already significantly lower 
than if you bought from a, a normal electricity bill. And even if the price point comes down to normal, like it was for a couple of years ago, it will still be a cheaper solution. So that really have fueled the growth for solar all over Europe. And you also see solar growing outside of Europe where energy prices are a little bit lower, but it's a big trend that fossil fuels are not getting cheaper. And that's even before people are talking about putting a tax on, on carbon emissions, right. if that would happen, solar and wind would be much more competitive already being the cheapest source of energy, but then being even cheaper. But if, I, if you take a typical household, tell me like in terms of numbers, what would their current price be and what would it be with solar installation? It differs a little bit from market to market. We are in, currently in five markets, but like a normal system will range roughly between let's say 10,000 euros to up to maybe 20,000 euros. And then the savings from that would be in, in the range of maybe with current pricing, you're looking at up to 5,000 euros per year, depending on where you are. But so it's quite high and you will get your money back in less than five years in many of our markets right now. So if you invest in solar, you have some, somewhere around 20% payout for your investment, which is quite high. I've been hearing about solar, renewable energy and companies that are producing the solar panels or installations or putting solar farms for a long time, but it hasn't really become mainstream. Why has that been the case and what is different now? I think that there's always been customers that are willing to invest in solar because of lowering their climate impact. And those have always been there. And then obviously more and more customers are looking into how can I save money from a financial perspective. And now also recently, there's a third reason is that I want to control my own energy. So own that and be able to store that in batteries. So those three combined have really created a surge in demand for solar. But it also takes a long time to develop a supply chain where, you know, we as installers and other companies in the business are scaling up. The business is growing with 30, 40% per year worldwide right now. And Europe is a little bit higher. We as a company are scaling with over 100% per year. That really puts a sort of cap and constraint on how much we can deliver. So it's the recent years have really entered a new area where companies are scaling fast and the growth rates are really coming from low numbers to quite significant numbers. And this is when you have an exponential growth, like we and other companies have in the business, that's when you go from low numbers to, to quite high numbers quite fast. So it's really an implementation game right now. The demand is there to really have solar on maybe almost all households already, but it takes time for us and other companies in the business to really scale up. Over the course of maybe 10 to 20 years, most people in Europe will have some sort of solar solution. Do you think if the Ukraine war ended today, would, how would that impact your growth? Do you think people would still continue to say, we need to do this? Or do you think that would decline or flatten in any way? It was a wake-up call in many ways. A lot of people think about the environment when we talk about solar and wind and so on and taking away fossil fuels, which is obviously a super crucial part of this, but not so many were thinking about energy insecurity. And those combined becomes super powerful. I mean, it's basically mm -hmm. the entire you know, economy in Europe is built on reliable energy. And if we think that is sort of threatened, and then we will really go into and see how can we make sure that, that shift happens. So even if the war ends, which hopefully happens soon, we as Europeans probably will look into and how can we secure our own energy. And the right. only way of doing that, since we have limited sort of fossil fuels within European borders, we need to go renewable. So it's not only the environmental aspects, but also the energy security. And that's not going to go away, even if we have a more stable geopolitical scenario here in Europe. But I think just that how fragile our energy security is and have been was really highlighted this year. Some of the common barriers that I've heard of when it comes to solar, because we were also looking at solar for our housing, for example, 
the initial cost of installation and the long ROI in getting that back was one of the things that was a barrier. And also the need for the space for putting those. And then you live in countries like UK where the sunshine is very limited. The need for the large battery pack was another thing that was a barrier. So how are some of these barriers and challenges being solved today by your company? First of all, what we are trying to do is basically uh, taking care of the entire energy need with energy contracts, with the sort of battery storage, EV charging and solar and combining that, ensuring that yeah. you're using energy at the right times. And yeah. we can also do that by helping the customer finance the system with them renting or leasing the system so that they don't have to put any money upfront at all. So mm. that you're signing on lease, then you can save money day one without having the capital. Because a lot of people that wants to buy, go solar, as you mentioned, cannot put up the investment needed. Yeah. And then we and other actors on the market now are providing a service where we can really ensure that, that you as a customer do not need to put all your capital here to buy a solar system, but instead lowering your energy bill by paying a smaller fee to us than what you would pay to the electricity company before. Solar energy is clean energy. But one of the other arguments that I've heard about the darker side of solar has to do recycling. So a lot of the panels, etc., they're made up of lithium, cadmium, all these different elements. And there's not a good strategy in terms of recycling. What are your thoughts on how that can be tackled. I mean, obviously that's a super important thing here to really go fully renewable. We need to build a complete circular solution here. It's important to also understand that there's a lot of technologies out there and very few panels have that have been put on a roof have been taken down because they yep. tend to last for 30 plus years. And most of the panels that you have out there are installed in the last 10 years. So the market, they're not there yet to yeah. really take care of those panels, but there are already been an incentives to take care of this. All our panel manufacturers that we are working with are part of what, what's called PV cycle, where they, you put aside a small amount to take care of the sort of afterlife for the panel. Mm. And if mm. you look at sort of silicon panel, which is the most common panel, those are quite easy to actually take care of the materials since they're quite valuable. And that's what I think the market will go towards where you can really make panels from worn out panels. And we need to, as a business in general, for so the solar industry really have that mindset where we're going to create more panels from the panels that we have already used. And that's the only way to get to a sort of zero emission output for solar in general. It's still very low if you compare yeah. to sort of coal and gas and so on, but we have the ability to over time go to basically a full circle solution and that's needed for the business. But we need to start looking at solutions today that can be implemented in the coming 10 to 20 years when a lot of panels are going to come off the roofs. And I'm sure that you probably also need legislation to make sure that happens and it's not left to each company to to figure out how they want to contribute to that circular economy yeah, I think, and how I mean, important that is. Yeah, it's super important that it's also being standardized in a way that's yeah. easy to recycle. And a lot of the materials in a silicon panel is basically aluminum, it's silicon, it's copper and yeah. silver. And all those materials is relatively easy to recycle compared to other materials. Regulation and incentives by government make a big difference in terms of adoption of these renewable energy. And I know that you've expanded to five different markets. Could you give us an overview of how you're seeing different markets. What's good thing is that I would say that almost all European markets are quite proactive in, in, in tackling climate change. So there's a, 
I don't think there's any European country that do not have a strategy to how to work with this. And everyone is the countries that we have looking been looking at in Europe are quite pro-solar. And if you look at Europe in general and see the prognosis being made on many of the government agencies, solar will be the number one energy source even in Europe. And uh, with that being said, I mean, we see a tremendous surge in, in countries such as Germany and also in Sweden. And I think that also has to do also with the political movement, but also mm -hmm. with electricity prices being higher, mm -hmm. Germany being quite dependent on gas yeah. and also coal. And the countries that have been hit the hardest with price hikes yeah. now are really acting to take get rid of the yeah. basically gas and coal in some senses. And I think that also goes through. If you have a huge surge in demand for solar from the people, then the government also tend to be quite pro-solar. So I think you see that in all countries being very severely affected by high prices. But even before that, you saw that many of the sort of Germany and also now some countries like Italy are pushing hard towards solar because it's also benefiting their industries and lowering the electricity costs overall for the country. What about America? Right now, the Biden administration is putting a quite heavy sort of compensation package for all renewable energy sources and also storage like batteries and EVs and so on. And that's a, like an historically high amount of money that they're putting in there. And I think that's going to actually benefit the entire renewable sector, not only for America, but also for the rest of the world. Basically, if you throw a lot of research and development money like they're doing now, that will also be able to be benefited mm. from other countries. But I think that Europe um, should do the same thing, not to lose competitiveness against the US. There's been debate where some are arguing that the US policies are too harsh, meaning that the Europeans won't be competitive, which is somewhat true but there, there it's an easy solution on it is that europe is doing the same thing that would really benefit the entire renewable energy sector mm. if both europe and the us even combined with china that's also have a quite steep renewable energy program that would be super inspiring if the three main markets out there are pushing hard to, towards renewables the us is actually now taking really the leader here the leading role mm. here in, in showcasing what can be done in the renewable space in terms of research you mean no, it, not research is one of the things, but if you look at the amount of money being poured mm. in now in terms of subsidies, the US is really yeah. taking a lead here. China has been investing a lot in battery factories, in solar factories and so on for a long time. And now the US is catching up quite quick. Europe is a little bit now falling behind. Interesting. What do you think needs to happen for Europe to take leadership in this space? I think that the politicians need to understand that and if you invest a lot of money in a field, you will see outcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the US is doing. That's what the Chinese are doing. And I hope that the Europeans will do the same. You mean from the government perspective or like venture capitalists yeah. and like no, private financial? capital financial? market in Europe is super invested in renewables. Mm -hmm. So it's more from a governmental perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's not about finding one country. It's uh, sort of about pinpointing the European Union that... There are incentives for clean tech and green companies, for sure. But if you compare it to other markets, the European investments in this area is low. I see. Okay. Let's talk about your company, Svia Solar. I know when you started it in, what was it, 2014? Yeah, yeah. Yes, by the end of 2013, by the beginning of 2014. So just about nine years ago. Yeah, nine years ago, there wasn't a Ukraine war. There wasn't this existential energy crisis that we all were feeling. What made you start the company? And in those early stages, how did you get the funding for the company? Basically, we were two students that were studying engineering. And then we were looking into different fields and entering. In, and me personally, I'm a big believer of renewable energy. And I think that we have a 
quite a task to take away fossil fuels and looking into wind it was quite high investments i think you had to put up like five million euros to to build a windmill and i looked at bjorn which was my companion that we're studying together and i asked do you have five million euro he said no i don't either so we have to do something else so we looked into solar and, and had the thoughts that solar won't work in sweden it, it might work in southern california where we did one exchange but then we looked into it actually it works in sweden and if it works in sweden you can do the argument that it works in many other places and that's where we built the business plan and said, hey, if we're going to do an environmental impact, we really need to scale this business. So by day one, we looked into how can we build this company as fast as possible in a good, sustainable way. Uh, so we built the first year, we built a business plan to reach 1 billion sec that we did basically last year, one year ahead of schedule. And now we have a target of reaching 15 billion sec in four years. And we're putting up a budget basically for next year to do 4 billion sec in, in revenue. And that's really about being really planning for that growth and scaling the business in that way. And every panel we're putting up, we're pushing out coal, oil, and gas. And that's really the main sort of reason why Svea Solar exists today is to really take away as much CO2 emissions as possible and eliminate that. Tell me a little bit about your first few customers. How did you find them? How did you convince them? How did you figure out who you should go after for your first few customers? Quite interesting. We did a, we asked 200 potential customers and really what are they thinking about solar? Why are they not buying solar? And the three main arguments were basically that it's complicated. They don't know what to do. It was aesthetically not pleasing, basically, and it was expensive. Those were the mm -hmm. three sort of mm -hmm. main thoughts mm -hmm. in people's minds. So we put a basically a fixed price. We did everything for the customer and brought in the, a full black panel, which is basically the solar panel you're seeing now. We were one of the first in Europe to standardize that and say, hey, we're basically only offering black panels to our residential customers. And, and then we went out to the market. Our, competi our competitors were having the sort of aluminum framed with blue panels, and they were a little bit less expensive and sometimes even a little bit more output and people are, why should I buy this system that are more expensive and maybe doesn't produce the same amount of energy basically and we said because it looks better and people when you have a house you you maybe want to spend you know, like 500 euros extra to get it nicely looking because you can buy a countertop for 3000 euro basically for your kitchen so maybe you want to spend three four hundred euros to make your solar panel looks better and we can now see in the market that basically everyone is doing it so we were probably not that wrong so we were really trying to be very methodical and asking the customers what do they think and in the beginning since we were two students we were basically also doing the mounting ourselves so we really yeah. had a good connection with the customer and really understood what do they want and what kind of service do they expect and how can we bring that service alive and how can we scale that so I think basically we had no funding the first five years to take the company to almost half a billion sec. It was mainly us taking the cash flow from one customer to, to build the next customer and then two, three, four, five customers more. And then we founded a company to then go international where we needed the, the, the capital that we now have raised. But I think it's really about if you're bootstrapped in the way where you really are depending on making the customers happy, you get a feel of what they need and can really fulfill that need. A lot of companies, they maybe raise a lot of money and then they Come, came a little bit distance to, to what you're actually doing. And I think that's yeah. one of the things that we are really trying to keep close to our customers. And your first few customers is just word of mouth and reference from one yeah. to the other. And okay. right now, uh, even to, to this day, the best sort of channels for new customers is our referral programs, basically. I see. And, and then the pandemic hit. You went through hyper growth and then you went through layoffs, right? If you had to look back, at that time where you went through that hyper growth and layoffs, and it's a cycle that for some companies today is very real. Could you give some advice on what you did right and what companies should make sure they do? And what are some of the things that 
you didn't do right that they should be aware of? Yeah, I think it's uh, when the pandemic hit, they also pulled the subsidies for solar at the same time, basically in Sweden. We had done a fantastic ramp up and we were growing 100% plus per year and we were kept scaling for that growth. And then we, in, in a single sort of month, the demand just were vanished. And, you know, we had to lay off people, which was super tough. And we had to go back and really how ensure that we are taking care of our cost costume and doing that. And I think there is probably a lot of companies right now, maybe not in, in renewables because that demand is super high for us right now, but in other industries where you see demand really going down right now. Right. And I think that many companies are reacting a little bit later and they think that it might pick up again. But there's very few instances, I think, that you're cutting your cost too early. So I think really you know, understanding that it is a challenging market right now for many companies out there. And the sooner you can adapt your cost costume and find other ways of, of getting revenue, the better it is. Act really fast and do not act in, in, in sequence here because it's really, if you cut like a couple of people and then a couple of people and then a couple of people again, yeah. your sort of trust is really gone. So even if it was super tough, we did one cut and then you would build from there. And obviously we now have employed back a lot of those people and been multiple, the company several times and expanded more since then. But in that moment, I think it's really important that really try to look at making all the hard decisions in, in a fast sort of time frame because if you drag it out and say i don't think my organization can handle this now so i'm going to take it step by step you're right. going to make the organization super fatigued meaning that they see bad stuff coming and they create a lot of worry but if you go in and do a really thought through well-planned kind of harsh cut it would at least make the pain shorter which mm -hmm. i think benefits everyone including yourself okay anything else other than do it once be decisive and do it quickly versus dragging it out what other advice or lessons learned do you have from that period where you had to do layoffs? I think that we try to be super transparent. How do you make a cut in the, your company when you also are talking about hitting super high growth plans in a couple of years? You really need to be super transparent. So this is sort of basically the cost base and this is our sort of orders booked and how much that have gone down and so on. And try to sort of get your organization to really buy in and understand why you're doing this. Obviously, mm -hmm. I don't think everyone really at that time were supportive of what we did. But I think afterwards, when they really realized what we were doing and the things we really talked about was completely true, um, it, it's much easier to gain back that trust when we were, this is what's happening and we need to do these actions because of that. And our, you know, Obviously, this is not what we wanted. This is not what we were planning for. We really need to build a long-term plan for the company. And since then, as we have been able to hire back a lot of those people, many of them have been very supportive of what we did, even if it was super tough for them. I was just wondering whether now that you are again in a growth cycle and you're trying to hire back, was it a problem to hire people because you were like, oh, they had these layoffs and you never know, or it was not a problem to hire people again? Since I think we were quite transparent, we didn't have any issues at all. Obviously, we might have been lucky, but I think that we were planning it quite thoroughly and mm -hmm. did it, I think, in a, a, as nice way as you can. Mm -hmm. It's always hard but going back there and then really growing the company in a good way. Not doing a cut like that can be much worse for your reputation because it means that you maybe are doing your cut too late. And yeah. then you need to cut even harder and might have really hard to recover as a company. It might sound harsh, but if you're not taking care of your cost base in time, you know, it, it will be much tougher for you and all your employees. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about now. Obviously, the picture is very different. 100% growth, um, 1.5 billion in revenues projected in 2026. And you raised $100 million and then you raised an another $100 million. So now you're in this 
massive scale phase. And if I think back to your initial phase, it was very much bootstrapped, controlled, grow as you need to grow. Now you have this influx of money, you're trying to scale rapidly. What are the top challenges a company like yours faces when you have to scale at that rapid? We are roughly 1,200 people today and are going to be roughly 5,000 people in the upcoming four years here. And when you're at that sort of hyper growth, it's super important to really attract talent, keep them within the company and make them develop with the company so that we're people are getting better and better within the company. Those three are really the main sort of challenges that we have. Obviously, there's a lot of other challenges, but if you really get yep. good people that are motivated and know what they're doing, working together, they will solve a lot of complex problems. And you can argue that the more complex problems you can solve, the more your company over time will be. But, you know, it's also important when you are, if basically all the company company's employees today stay with the company, you will roughly have 80% of the personnel being new in four years. Keeping that culture within the company is a big challenge. So we focus quite hard on really onboarding people with the sort of values we have as a company so that they can have the same sort of decision matrix that everyone held in, in the company has. Because if you're having, let's say, 100 people here that, you know, will be 500 people later on and you just onboard them, they will, the culture might spiral. So I think keeping track of your culture and understanding that performance is obviously super important for a company, but also the culture is super important. If the culture is start, starting to pivot away, you might even have to take away some people that are not perfectly fitting the culture, even if they're performing super well. So I think that's something that that have taken me some time to really understand the value of having really a good culture match and not only focusing on performance. It's such an important thing. If you're going to scale rapidly and still be successful, it's all about the people and talent that you hire, that you are able to retain, and then make sure that it has that culture fit. But I want to just break it down a bit and go, let's take attracting. Like you, you have this massive growth goal. So you have to hire a huge number of people, how do you maintain the quality of the people that you're hiring? What is it about the hiring process that you think is helping you bring the right talent? Yeah, I think that it, it's obviously being good at recruiting is important, but building yeah. a employee brand is even more important. And combining the vision and mission of the company, talking about this is what we're going to achieve over hit that 1.5 billion euro in, in basically in the upcoming five years here now is important for us to really work on. If we're going to inspire people to wanting to come to Svea, it's a lot easier to attract people. So I think that we were quite fortunate last year. I think we won the LinkedIn Rising Star in Sweden as one of the most attractive employers for employees to, to go to. And with that being said, we have the ability to really attract top talents. And if you have really good people coming to your company, that by sheer quality of people will attract good people. Good people wanted to work with good people. And that's also going back to culture here. If you have a, a sort of leader within the company that are not performing well or are not supportive of their team, you're not going to get good people under that leader. So it's super important that you really ensure that you have good people coming into the team. And there can be people that are good for the company for a while, but then for some time, they, for some reason, are not developing with the company or maybe are switching their priorities in life for the reasons and you need to also coach people to maybe move within the organization to other positions or maybe even leave the company if they're not suitable for that job so it's really about monitoring that so that you can keep attracting good talent so i think that all companies with really good people within the company ha have a quite easy job to recruiting but then you have just a sheer size even if you have yeah. 
a lot of people wanting to come into companies also about how do you onboard them and how do you ensure that you hire the exact right people. So it's also being very specific about what are we role going to do? What's the role description and paint a picture that's as true to reality as possible. There's no reason for us to sell to people that are coming to the company that this is what you're going to do. And then you hand them something else that are less inspiring to work with. You need to really paint a reality picture towards the future employees so that they're calibrate expectations really. Yeah, I want to touch on two points that you brought up, which I think are, is important for every company listening. One is employer branding. Tell me a little bit about how you've done that successfully. I think that working with a company with a purpose and being very clear about what you're doing, and it can be different things. Ours is basically to focus on eliminating CO2 emissions. But no matter what you're doing, if you are really true to your core, and that can be very inspiring. And I think a lot of people will be inspired by that vision. But really, how are you, you know, communicating that? Obviously, your mission is beautiful and it's easy to understand and obviously it's by itself very inspiring but how are you getting that out there to the people that need to hear it i think that there, there's a couple of things here one being very persistent on what exactly are you doing what is your purpose of the company and a lot of companies tend to maybe widen that scope and talk about that they're doing a lot of things i think it's much much better to talk about what you're actually doing what are you what's your core and talk about that all the time and obviously if you're at a forum where you talk about something else you can talk about something else but i would still try to talk about your main goal if you okay. are super interested in sports and your company is about and enabling athletes to be better talk about that all the time and why that's great and why that's inspiring and not about how you're also doing a lot of other things. Because I tend to feel a lot of companies are trying to build an employee brand that's going to cover everything. You need to realize you don't want to attract everyone. You want to attract the people that really like what you're doing. And I think that's really the recommendation I would do is keep talking about what you really are motivated as a company to do and, and tend to stay out a little bit about, of the rest. Because otherwise you will not come through. And you will not come out as genuine. If you're going to say that I'm going to, you know, to all different things, you not come out as focused and people will start to question if you really care about the core. I love that advice. What about the other part of what you talked about, which is constantly evaluating people, making sure they're in the right roles that they're enjoying. There's a good fit between culture and the needs of the role and what the person wants to do and their skill set. What is your system to constantly be evaluating that and making sure that's working for the company? That's a great Great question. And I think that we have been working a lot with leaderships. Also, we put the people agenda super high. In the management team right now, I'm working together with Hannah Malmberg, which is the head of HR at the company. So we're together managing basically the entire management team. And it's really about we care so much about the people agenda, meaning that the leadership sort of qualities. So we have a lot of leadership practices, how we can make people better leaders. And, and a part of being a good leader is also assessing your team. You cannot in the same sentence, say that you're a good leader if you're not really understanding what how your team is performing on an individual basis. So it's a complete sort of, I would say, like a basic factor to really control your team. Put a roadmap for all your employees that you're working with and really have a sort of a plan where how they can evolve. And if they're not evolving as planned or, or as they should in that role, you need to also have a tough dialogue with them and saying that you maybe you should be in another position and so on. You need to standardize that and make that as a sort of a minimum requirement as a leader at this company is basically to, to constantly work with your team to make improvements, but also understand when that's not possible, have a dialogue. And that can be a, doesn't need to be harsh feedback. If you constantly give feedback to people, you can also coach them and say, hey, maybe you're not in the best position for yourself and your career. And if you have that feedback, 
continuously talking with a person will be much easier to then go and say, hey, why should we maybe look at a, a, another role for you? Because the benefits we have also is that if you're growing at, at like we are doing, is that many of our leaders can or employees that are not performing perfect can get, still get another opportunity within the company that will maybe make them grow faster. So it's not about right. them maybe not performing well in that role and also being transparent with that and saying that maybe you can get to that role you know, in a couple of years or if you hit certain milestones or if you perform at a certain level. So it's not about saying that you can't be here, you need to go. It's about how do you coach people to be at the right position in the company? Yeah, it sounds like really the development and retention of talent has a lot to do with having a good HR department that really is there to help both managers, but as well as individual contributors to find the right role and to develop in those roles and be able to solve any challenges that come. Having that person or that team to really help develop the people aspect of it is an important part of scaling with people. I, I would take it even further, not only having a sort of HR or department that are working well, I would say, how do you take the HR department and commercialize that into all mm -hmm. other departments? It's really about understanding that if you can work well with people and attract good talents and make them evolve with good feedback and so on, this business is critical. And I think mm -hmm. that's really the way I view things is if we can really get all people in the company to really think as people, as assets and how they can grow with the people and grow their teams to perform better, with high-performing teams, we can see the performance go well. And it's also exciting to see that the teams that are ranking highest, because we always measure how people are doing with ENPS mm -hmm. scores and so on, we want to really ensure that that we can get people to to yeah really perform better over time. And, and you can see that correlation between high ENPS and high performance is almost one-to-one. -one. Interesting. And there are some departments like marketing or sales where there's very clear the KPIs that they're trying to hit to see if they're performing right. Do you have certain KPIs to to evaluate your HR? Yeah, we have some external KPIs. We were proud to get the Human Growth Award as the best HR department in Sweden, I think oh. it was three weeks ago. But in general, it's really about we all continuously evaluate the new recruits we're getting in and how well are they performing and how well are they fitting to the culture and the teams. So that's a thing. And we also have the... Uh, employees or, or future employees within the recruitment cycle, they need to rank or get the opportunity to rank how well they're being treated and so on, and also how well they're being treated by the teams. But I think that in general, the entire leadership program is sponsored basically by all the leaders in the company. So we're more or less trying to say in, in the other way around saying that how well are we as a company performing as leaders? And that sort of also be our ENPS score, which is basically our own employees ranking how well they're want to recommend Sveas to other other friends and so on and or other acquaintances to, to start working here and also how feel that they're being treated and so on. So it, it's some sometimes I get the feeling that some people think that putting harsh demands on people requirements of putting hitting deadlines and hitting quotas and so on should be counterintuitive to high ENPS scores. But it's quite the opposite. When people are hitting their quotas and they're hitting their high targets that they know is hard to make, if they hit them, they, they tend to feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. They tend to feel better about the team and it creates a good team spirit. So I think that understanding the value of if you get teams to work really well, they also want to perform. The important thing to also going back to the right people at the right places. If you have people that are not happy at work, they will not only perform well, not well, they will also tend to drag their team down. So it's really important that you really, you know, 
help everyone to perform well and feel good in the company. Or if not, talk with them how they can be better. Maybe talk with them how they can do something else within the company. Or if not, how you can help them to get another job. I can hear the engineering mindset about being logical and rational with processes and systems and KPIs and metrics to measure what you can. When you made the shift from engineering to an entrepreneurial mindset, what was the hardest part of it? Like, obviously, there's a lot of things that are trans transferable or, in fact, an advantage in terms of how an engineering mind thinks and what you need to be a good entrepreneur. But what was the hardest part about becoming an entrepreneur and how did you overcome that? I think, I mean, I probably had an entrepreneurial mindset for a long time, but also with an engineering mindset that, that you've been trained. I was more in the sort of mindset that if you have smart people in the room, you, they will good, do good things, right? The culture part and how they work together was probably vastly underestimated. But you tend to see that you can have quite talented people that are working really well together that will all every time beat super talented people that are not working well together. Now, that sounds obvious. A lot of people are only hiring people that are performing well on a CV or even on tests and so on. And I think that understanding that great leadership is probably the, the most scarce resources out there. And if you can really, you know, talented people that have great leadership skill sets, that is for me really the success factors that I have when I started out as an entrepreneur, probably underestimated vastly. And, and that's why I've tried for a couple of years really to to scale leadership th thinking and with all having this all these metrics and see you can see measure how well our leaders performing and not and really coach leaders and invest in how we become better as leaders in the company and what are our values and what is our sort of culture and try to define that so it's really about mm -hmm. taking an area which i think has not been very methodical i would argue maybe some would disagree here but but and really trying to put an engineering mindset on, on, on values that have been quite hard to measure. And I tend to think that over on scale, it's quite easy to find out information that will give you directions, whether if you're trending well or not in a department or as a leader or as a, in, in, in that mindset. Yeah. And doing that simultaneously as growing is quite tough, but so far, I think that's been tremendously successful. If you interview people, how do you find out if they have that mindset, that leadership mindset? Is it just looking at have you managed teams before and how large are your teams and getting references? Or are there specific questions or ways that you have found gives you a better indication of if they would be the right type of leader? Yeah, I think there's a great question. And one question I tend to ask everyone I'm interviewing is basically tell them how you and your team have solved different complex problems. And you tend to hear on how they're speaking about themselves and their team, their values will show and also how involved and passionate they've been about solving that problem and how tough it was. Hmm. So I think that, you know, some people that, you know, give a very vague answer is usually because they're not very good at giving specifics because they probably were not the part of the team that were solving the critical part of the problem. Hmm. If they've really been working close with the team and really being productive and really helping that team to grow in a good way, they usually tend to give you some flavor of details that are quite interesting to hear. Mm. So more detail-oriented and probably more about the work that they and the team did versus either not giving specific details or making it all about themselves potentially, right? Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to hear about what they think about their teams that they've been working with before. And they tend to talk about their teams and their strengths and weaknesses and so on and what they've learned and not. And I think that gives a very good picture on how they're 
leading people. Any other questions that you ask in your interview process? Are there other questions that really reveal the aspects of a person, whether it's leadership or otherwise, that you find useful in asking? I think that the three things I'm looking for is basically leadership skills. We talked about that, but passion and heart. Do you have a good heart? Do you have good values? Not like a company values, like your basic values as a person is mm. super important. The people that tend to be easiest to go through a sort of interview process and most likely to get a job that probably shouldn't get, have gotten that job is people that are extremely talented, but really are missing sort of basic values. Because you look, you become blinded of their fantastic abilities and they will perform quite well for a time, but they will create some subgroups and they will not be a good asset for the company long-term. How do you find out about the values? Leadership yeah. is also connected to some sometimes values, but make them talk about the view, what the company is doing and in general and why they want to join the company and what they're excited about. And that will give you a perception of that person. And I think also having a passion about the company, are they really there to also help the company grow forward? And passion in general, I would say in many instances, really beats skill sets. Interesting. Is there anything else I should have asked about this area on people hiring interviews that I've not asked that you would like to say anything about? No, I think that just trying to standardize leaderships and skill sets and developments within that area is quite hard. But I think that there's a lot of other complex problems that people can break down to smaller problems. So I think that we have started to showcase, we're far from done, that we can make a quite standardized ways of scaling leadership. And I think that if we can do that well over time, I think that would be critical to our success. Excellent. Eric, we've come to the end of our podcast. I usually have a few questions that I like to ask at the rapid round fire. And usually I start with, what's your favorite book? What's a book that's made an impact on you that you'd like to share? I've read a, a couple of books, but I think that Bill Gates' book about climate change is quite a good book. That they or he explains in a good way and talking about engineering mindset, where you can break it down, where you can see that roughly 80% of all the CO2 emissions in the world comes from industry, energy, and transportations and, and yep. really making, as we talked about, making breaking down a problem into smaller problems and then focusing on that. I think that's inspiring. Lovely. What's a productivity tool or productivity tip that keeps you productive? We have, it's maybe not a tool, we have a, a daily meeting for the management team and they have, in essence, for their teams and so on. We're trying to set, say, make sure that every team at Svesolar has a daily meeting for 10 minutes every day. I think Stand that... Yeah, stand up. And that's being implemented and or being implemented throughout the company right now. I think extremely good results. So it's not a really a tool, but so it's, it's a free tool, but yeah. it's a quite... It's all about what are you trying to accomplish today? Exactly. It's basically good news. You talk about what you have done good yesterday. You talk about what you're going to do today and what you need help from your team. Those are the three topics we talk about, nothing else. Excellent. What is your favorite European city? I would say Stockholm. I believe in Stockholm, but I think it's a great city, actually, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I have a lot of Swedish friends that tell me to visit. Okay. And a last question. What's a favorite quote? Something that you tell yourself or your employees or you live by? It doesn't have to be yours, but just something that, again, is meaningful to you. But I'm a big Apple fan. And I think that Steve Jobs had a good quote where they were basically talking about think different. And I think that's really the mindset that when you're disrupting an industry like we're trying to do, we need to invent new ways of doing things. And the entire sort of way of replacing fossil fuels is about finding new solutions. So I think that's a great quote. Lovely. Thank you so much, Eric, for being on my podcast today. Really enjoyed it. And I hope a lot of people look up Sphere Solar. Is it in UK? Can I go buy it? Where do I go to buy solar installation? No, 
Not yet. Sorry about that. But over time, I think that now we're in five countries in Spain, oh, sorry, Spain, Belgium, Germany, Netherlands and Sweden. And we'll, we will cover maybe Italy, UK, Poland, a couple of other countries in a couple of years here. But I think in, in, in four or five years time, we will cover roughly 80% of Europe. That's our plan. Great. Fantastic. Congratulations again on, on the last funding round. Wishing you all the best. Thank you very much and appreciate being on your podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and reviews help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.